Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Julia Flynn Seiler, and I'm very pleased to be the moderator of this evening's virtual Commonwealth Club program focused on Jasmine Darznick's new and terrific book, The Bohemians. Welcome to all Commonwealth Club members and the general public. If you aren't a member of the club, now is a great time to consider membership, as the club, like the rest of us, is looking forward to in-person programs again sometime later this year. I am a big fan of Jasmine's work, and I love her new book, which focuses on 1920s San Francisco, a period I've touched on in my recent nonfiction book. And that's a subject we'll get into in our conversation. I'm also part of the Commonwealth Club's California Book Awards program, so I'm so pleased to be here tonight to discuss a book that brings to life an exciting period in California history and some of our state's most visionary artists. So let's get going, and uh, we're going to have a really fun conversation with my friend. It's such an honor for me to be here tonight in conversation with Jasmine to talk about her wonderful historical novel, The Bohemians, which really is a love letter to the city of San Francisco and the Roaring Twenties and to the artists who lived here. So I guess I'll just kick off, Jasmine, with a, a, a very basic question. What inspired you to write The Bohemians? Sure. So I'm going to call you Julie all night because we're friends. <laughs> and it's just a really just such a pleasure for me to be here speaking with you. I love untold hidden stories, repressed stories, lost stories. And um, when I began to think about um, my next book project after finishing the last novel, I started to read about Dorothea Lange, who we all know her work through the Depression, her Depression era photographs. But there was very little written about her life before then. And as I got to know her story, I just became captivated and entranced with the period before the Depression when she was a young woman coming to California and establishing herself and falling in with this extraordinary group of artists um, in San Francisco in the city. And so I wanted to tell her coming of age story, which then also becomes a coming of age story of San Francisco, too. Mm, so, so beautiful. Tell us a little bit about one of the key settings for your novel, a building called The Monkey Block. Uh, and it's a lost landmark. We can't see it anymore. Um, could we have a, that photograph of The Monkey Block, please? So this building, um, as you say, it doesn't exist anymore. It was built in the mid-1800s. It survived the earthquake, and it became a haven for artists and writers of all different stripes. At one point, Mark Twain had lived in this building. It stands where now the Transamerica Pyramid is, so right downtown, four-story building, an artist colony that housed about 800 artists, writers of different stripes uh, over its hundred or so year history in San Francisco. I absolutely fell in love with this building. I was just transfixed by the notion of an artist colony in the, in the heart of downtown San Francisco. 
Jasmine, how did this Argus colony come to be? I mean, surely whoever built that, you know, very stately looking building didn't imagine 800 artists running around it. Um, How did that evolve? Sure. It wasn't originally meant to be an artist colony. Uh, It had originally housed newspapers and lawyers' offices, but it became somewhat run down, unfashionable. And that's when the Bohemians started coming (laughs) and establishing themselves in it. Um, And they built a community here. The, um, The building, like I say, it stood for, you know, decades and, um, and was, was the beating heart of Bohemia, San Francisco, Bohemia. And these artists lived in this building and worked in this building, created art in this building. Isn't that right, Jasmine? That's right. There were artist studios here. The artists loved, if you look at the photograph, you see there are tall windows, and these were perfectly suited to painters and other visual artists who were there. Um, It was, you know, really beautifully situated there at the foot of Telegraph Hill uh, adjacent to North Beach stones throw away from Chinatown. And um, it was it was just a really magical um, setting for many decades. Mm-hmm. And tell us about some of the artists who uh, were in this place, a magical place over the years and in the 1920s. Sure. So I, when I first discovered this building, I started scouting around and um, looking for for people who had lived here. And I, tra- and I was just um, transfixed by the crowd around Dorothea Lang, which included her husband, painter Maynard Dixon, and um, there were other women photographers. I'd love for, for us to take a look at them. I think we've got some photographs of Dorothea Lang's women photographer friends who, if maybe they didn't all live here, but they were all part of the circle um, that convened around this building. One of them was Imogen, uh, excuse me, I'm going to start with uh, Consuelo Kanaga, who Dorothea Lang met when she first came to the city. Um, let's back up, actually. And let me show you a young Dorothea Lang before we get into her crowd. Um, there's a there's a fi- there's a picture of her. This is Dorothea Lang again as a young woman, decade, a decade or so before she was taking her iconic, now iconic, Depression-era photographs. Uh, she has her camera there. Dorothea Lane came to San Francisco in 1918. Um, she did not plan to stay here. <laughs> she got marooned in a sense, um, but fell in with the artist crowd that was centered around Monkey Block. She married her husband, Maynard Dixon, pretty pretty soon after she arrived in San Francisco, about a year or two after arriving in the city. And we could show a photograph of the two of them during this period of their lives. There they are. So that's Maynard Dixon on the left there. These and, and Dorothea Lang at the right. This couple was Bohemian royalty. <laughs> when they married in 1920, um, they were the king and queen of this Bohemian kingdom that had sprung up around Montgomery Block in San Francisco. Maynard Dixon was a couple of decades older than Dorothea Lang and a much more established artist when they met. Dorothea Lang at that time didn't think of herself as an artist. She was a, a portrait photographer and was a long ways away from thinking of herself as an artist. But this was her um this this was her 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 time of finding herself and with her marriage to Dixon she became um like I say the queen of this bohemia. 
it's such a surprising story, uh, Jasmine. You know, I'm familiar, as most of us are, with uh, Lang's Depression-era photographs, which are so powerful. But I just had no idea about this period when she first came to San Francisco uh, before reading The Bohemians. And it's it's really quite a story. Is it true that she was robbed on her very first day in the city? She was robbed pretty much as soon as she got here. She had set out, Dorothea Lang uh, was born in Hoboken, New Jersey. She came out to California in 1918. The World War One was on. She really had wanted to go to Europe, but that was impossible. So she had come out west and intended just to stay in San Francisco a couple of weeks. When she was robbed, um, it became then impossible to continue her journey. She had intended to go down to Mexico and then uh, and then to Hawaii and and then the Far East. She had all kinds of dreams, <laughs> but then her money was stolen. The money that she'd been that she'd been saving up for a few years working as a assistant in a studio in a portrait studio in in Manhattan and so she got moored here <laughs> she was marooned here and um and California wind, wound up shaping her profoundly how did it shape her jasmine tell us about that yeah san francisco's always been a beacon for artists, I think freedom-loving people of all kinds. And so there was a really vibrant community here, but also because the 1906 earthquake and fires had destroyed the city. It had also destroyed the artistic community here. And many artists were not able to sustain their their livelihoods here. And, uh, and actually Dorothea Lange's own mentor, Arnold Gente, went back to New York. This created as, as dramatic and I think, you know, traumatic as it was for San Francisco and its artist community. It also created important opportunities and possibilities for women, especially. So Dorothea Lange comes to California at this moment when um, there are other women photographers working. There are um, there are a group of really vibrant, dynamic women practicing in the field, and she's able to begin to imagine herself um, in a different way once she comes to San Francisco. Mm, beautiful. Um, did you? You know, I was so taken with the the uh, the places that you describe in the city. As I mentioned before, it felt like a love letter to the city. And uh, there's the very early scene around the time of the robbery where she makes it all the way uh, to the cliff house and to Ocean Beach. Um, and I was just wondering, did you yourself kind of follow her journey um, in order to describe it so uh, in, with such great texture? Yeah, so I had gr- I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Marin County. I, um, I, in a way, it was a known place to me. I, I've known it all my life, and yet, I think writing writing about a place um, it fastens you to it in a different way. I think you have to make it strange to yourself in order to write about it well. I think you need to defamiliarize yourself and you also need to steep yourself in it. So I found myself visiting places that I had, hadn't had been to in years or maybe ever um, and, uh, and, and really trying to get a sense um, of the, the spirit of these places that had so animated her life and, and been such an important part of her, um, of her coming of age. So absolutely, it was an opportunity to trek to these, these fantastic places, many of which still survive, you know, the, a lot of the, the great spaces and places that were built up 
after the earthquake are still our iconic buildings and um, and places. So give us give us some examples, Jasmine. What places did you go to? So the ferry building, which um, which is which was Dorothea Lange's first point of contact with San Francisco when she came over. From the East Coast, she would have disembarked in Oakland, taken the ferry building over, and the ferry building was the very first place she set foot in San Francisco. And the ferry building, you know, it's transformed inside, but but the general the, the space is is much the same. We have the state the same clock tower um, that would have greeted Lang when she came in in May of 1918 to the city. North Beach is is also very much the same. North Beach, which would have been you know very close to Montgomery Block, as I mentioned, um, the Sentinel Building down there. There's there are sections in the novel too when I take you to the to Golden Gate Park and the Japanese Tea Gardens. Um, a young Dorothea and her friend love to traipse around Golden Gate Park. So a lot of those places are still there and I was able to visit. Absolutely wonderful. Um, now, why did artists and photographers choose to make it their home? I mean, in Dory's case or Dorothea's case, it was an accident. She wasn't planning to spend there much time there. Only a few weeks. She got robbed. She ran out of money. She had to go to work uh, to support herself. But Tell us about some of the other artists and how they ended up there and why. Why San Francisco? Sure. Uh, it's a great, it's a great, great question. And I, and I don't think it's been written about that much. I mean, I think we've, we know other parts of San Francisco's history, or we think we know the history of the twenties, but this, 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 this decade or so down by Montgomery Block was so dynamic. So let's get to know one of the people who really impressed her, one of the women who Dorothea Lange just fell for, and that is Consuelo Canaga. If we could get a shot of her. There she is. All right. So Consuelo Canaga, um, she had she wasn't born here, but she she was when Lang met her, she was working for the Chronicle as a as a journalist and a photographer too. And Lang was just absolutely bowled over by how gutsy this woman was. She went everywhere. That's what Lang said about her, is this woman went everywhere. And uh, and so she was one of the very their very few very early women journalists working in San Francisco. Um, she she had a she had a real daring about her that 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 never that never left her late in life. She became very active in chronicling um, social justice movements, and so I think that that spirit of Consuelo was something that Lang observed, and then would of course become so important in Lang's own life in her work. Another person who was very important to Lang uh, is Imogen Cunningham, who you might know better than you know Consuelo Canaga. I think next picture is of Imogen. And there she is with her camera. So Imogen was a very successful portrait photographer, but she was doing, while Consuelo was doing, um, you know, almost activist work, you would think, Imogen is important to Dorothea Lange because Imogen is taking art photography. Now, Dorothea Lange wouldn't take art photographs for a long time, but Imogen was in many ways, an important model for Lang. She was the first um, woman that she knew on on a professional and, and a personal basis who was doing this work, who was balancing her studio work with 
uh, with her art photography. And they become friends, lifelong friends. Um, Imogen is a fantastic character. They're all, I mean, I don't think, <laughs> if ever there's a place that was populated by characters, it was San Francisco in the 1920s. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if any any other place on earth came close during that decade. So Imogen and Consuelo both were friends to Dorothea Lang, to a young Dorothea Lang, and then I think we've got. Let's see, maybe next photograph will introduce you to another member. So this is a very young Ansel Adams. Um, in the novel, he's he's just about eighteen or nineteen, and he hasn't yet decided on a career in photography. He still is thinking he'll be a, a become a pianist. He falls ill during the course of the novel. The Spanish flu hit San Francisco, and and, and Ansel Adams um, actually was ill. He he fell ill from the flu and nearly died. And and so that became part of the story. Lang and Ansel Adams had a long friendship. They quarreled often about the point and purpose of photography. Um but when they when they met he was a young young man and um and he was uh he he was sort of you know filled with the the energy and um you know curiosity that would mark his later work. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important, too, that you set your book at uh, this very pivotal moment for women and for the country as well. So women in California, of course, got the vote early. Uh, we got the vote in 1911 in our state. Uh, women nationwide got the vote in 1920 which is right, it's, you know, kind of opened everything up. And uh, the nation comes through the pandemic, the flu pandemic in that case, that toppled um, uh, so many, so many people at the time, but then opens up into this extraordinarily exuberant period, which some people say we're heading into now a new 20s. I hope so. Uh, having, you know, gone through our own pandemic. Um but I think it's so fascinating as a nonfiction writer, as a historian, to to uh, situate your book and the blossoming of women as they're moving out of the private domestic sphere and into the working life. And that's, of course, what these courageous uh, photojournalists and uh, portrait photographers that you are profiling or you're writing about are doing. You know, they're earning their own way. They're making their way through the world. And it's just fascinating because it really is such an important moment in history. Absolutely. I agree. Very exciting. Um, and and yet also very, a very complex moment for women too, because, um, you know, as maybe we'll talk about later, when these women married and had children, they were confronted with a whole host of problems that I think are very familiar to us. So an exciting period for women. And yet, um, and also there's a legacy that I think is familiar to us still about the hard choices women have to make. Absolutely. And that brings me to my next question for you, Jasmine, which is that our, our recent work intersects uh, in, in one character in particular, um, and you know who I'm talking about. Let's let's talk about her a little bit because she's fascinating and uh, very topical in what the world is going through right now. So tell us a little bit about Caroline Lee. 
Sure. So as I read about Lang, Lang, as I said, she had no money at all. Within a year or two, she's running the most sought after portrait studio in San Francisco. She didn't do it alone. She did it with these women and these other artists that I've mentioned before. But there was another woman who was without a name in most accounts, and that's Dorothea Lang's Chinese American assistant. She's sometimes mentioned, uh, when she's mentioned, she's referred to as the the mission girl. Um, and uh, And yet, I could tell from even the scant references that she had been really critical to Lang's success. That the, these two women had worked side by side and created this extraordinary setting. Um, their their studio was at 540 Sutter Street in San Francisco, and they had um, just created this um, almost like a dreamlike space in which then the the creme de la creme, if you want to say, of San Francisco society would enter that studio and. Um, and, uh, and and they were her clients, yeah. But there was so little known about her. She was just a passing reference. I'm always most interested when, when there are gaps or, you know, these sort of these hints are so enticing to me. And so I wanted to know more about who she would have been. Unfortunately, there are some stories that you can only imagine, I think. And so the more I read about um about Lang, the more curious I became about these two women's collaboration, and the more then I had to invent and imagine because history had not recorded her life, had not even recorded her name. Well, tell us a little bit about what a mission girl meant. What What is a mission girl? Well, you, I mean, in your amazing book, White Devil's Daughters, um, you chronicle this history so well. In San Francisco, I think there were two missions, um, so it wasn't just the one, but Donaldina Cameron, who you've written about extensively in in, um, in your last book, she was the head of a mission which rescued, helped, um, supported girls, young women, babies even, who had been victims of the sex trafficking of young, um, of Asian women, of Chinese women in the late part of the 19th century and early 20th century. And so I imagined that this character, this this uh, character who I named Caroline in the novel, grew up at 920 Sacramento Street in the mission there, the mission for, for girls who'd been orphaned or rescued. And that was a time in history where there were very few Chinese women in San Francisco because there had been such stringent immigration laws. And it was a dangerous place for a woman, um, from a, for an Asian woman, for, for a Chinese woman at the time. And, uh, and just walking into the streets would have been a perilous endeavor at that time. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you put your finger on it. Um, uh, you know, I, I researched the history of that particular project, missionary project, and 2,000 to 3,000 girls and women came through it over a 70-year period, including the period that you write about. Uh, But the extraordinary thing was so many of their stories remain hidden. Um, No, Very few people know of them. There are glimmers of their stories in the case files, but, um, you know, tracking individuals down and trying to figure out exactly who might have been Dorothea Lange's mission girl uh, is better left to a novelist, a skilled 
beautiful novelist like yourself, because it's it, it, for historians you run a, up against uh, so many barriers trying to trying to uh, find that. Um, tell us a little bit more about Caroline. She's such a vivid character. I fell in love with her. So tell us about her. I did too. I did too. In in the novel, I, I imagine her as a mixed race, which at the time she would have been called a half breed. Um, and, uh, you know, or, or worse, you know, more, more terrible um, things would have been said about people of mixed parentage at the time. But she's a really dynamic character. She grows up in the mission home. Here's Donald Dina Cameron with one of her charges. This is not, of course, this is not Caroline Lee, but um, Caroline Lee would have been about this age when she uh, when she was rescued and, and um, taken into the home, the the, the home, the mission there. And in the novel, I imagine that she becomes, she grows up and she, in a way she runs away to monkey block, <laughs> which is the only place that'll rent to her at the time. There were very, um, you know, very strict rules about where the Chinese could live in San Francisco. And in the novel, I have her in a sense, take refuge among the artists of Montgomery block. She is a dressmaker, uh, which would have been one of the professions available to women of that time. The women at the 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 women, the young girls um, in in Donaldina Cameron's charge, learned to sew. I think as part of their education, if I'm remembering. Yes, they did correctly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that much of a leap to think, you know, she could have, she might have become a seamstress. Let's say again, there were just so you couldn't live where you wanted to. You couldn't. You, there's so few jobs available to you as a as a Chinese woman, Chinese American woman at that time. Um, but she's dynamic and feisty, and she takes Dorothea under her wing in a way, and she gives her entree into this community down at Montgomery Block. Mm, and she has a little, uh, she has a bob similar to that little girl on Donaldina Cameron's lap, doesn't she? Which was very daring in those days. To wear a bob for a, a young woman. It was. It really was. I mean, it was um, pretty ri risque in 1918 to have bobbed your hair. Women were just starting to do it. In a few years, everybody would have, you know, had their bob um, or something like it. And <laughs> but but Cal Caroline um, Caroline is a renegade. She's um, she's a real rebel. So Jasmine, I I because we're friends and I know you and I also know that you love beautiful clothing. Uh, I, I have to give you a shout out to the just uh, precise details and knowledge of clothing that he brought to Caroline's uh, profession. Um, that that in itself was a journey to um, look at the at what she wore, to look at her shoes, to look at her choices, and a sense of how. Um, Clothing became a, a, a way of empowering women um, during that time. Could you describe how did you research um, clothing in the 1920s for women? How did you come up with that? I'm a dressmaker's granddaughter. <laughs> so my, my grandmother, who actually was born in 1920, she was a dressmaker. And she, uh, you know, she, she was a wonderful, in a, in a way, a model for Caroline, in, in a way, um, in that she was able to build a life for herself with her, with her shears and her wits, you know, she, she made a life for herself and it was, you know, it, I, I think clothes it's, I think we think they're superficial or, you know, uh, you know, why, why bother about details like that, but they open up a story, they open up a history. I mean, to give you just one example, 
uh, you know, women didn't carry purses until the 1920s. Women didn't carry purses because men carried their money and they didn't have money of their own. So it's only when women enter the professions during World War One that they begin making money and they need a purse to carry it in. That's a whole... Uh, you know, the, that story of just that one object, I think, reveals so much. And so looking at Caroline and, and studying the way that she built her life and she also created herself, the clothing and, and, and her, her room at Monkey Block, all of that was an opportunity to, um, to show you this, this other time in this other place when women were making themselves up. <laughs> I like that description, making themselves up as they went. <laughs> Um, now, there, the Caroline has a particular set of challenges. You alluded that, to that earlier. Um, could you please show us the next photograph of? Uh, um, uh, sure. So this yeah. is an actual. Um, this is an actual campaign poster. James um, Duval Phelan ran. He was the mayor of San Francisco and then became the senator from California. In the Senate. And this was the campaign poster, 1920, he ran on this campaign, Keep California White. And so most of us, many of us, even I, when I started this project, I had this certain idea of the 20s. And it was a magical time. And, and as we were talking about earlier, it was a time of possibility for women. But there, there was also an ascendant xenophobia and nationalism that was brewing and brewing and brewing um, that engendered horrific hate crimes. It also uh, spawned legislation that would further restrict immigration from specifically China. And so Caroline, as I was writing her, I could not uh, ignore the context into which she was, um, into which she would have been living at that time. Um, she's in a world that doesn't see her, doesn't want to see her, wants to see her gone. And, uh, and I became, you know, it became necessary to go deeper into that history and, and look at the white nationalism of that time. This was, um, you know, unfortunately, I couldn't make it up. These were, this is, this was California's story. I didn't know much about it when I started. But in writing the novel, I had to learn it. Mm-hmm. And how did that um, that uh, white nationalism of Phelan and others, how did that affect Caroline and how did that affect other uh, residents of Chinatown? Yeah, well, so Caroline becomes, she's a fictional character, but the way I imagine the novel, it's, it's asking a question about who's American, who's American. And the novel through Caroline is exploring that question Unfortunately, it's not the answer that um, that Caroline, you know, anticipates about herself. But it's it would have been a reality. So I think of Caroline as she's one part fiction, one part fact. There's a line in the novel where she says, um, or Dorothea says that my name and Dorothea was making herself up too. Dorothea was born Dorothea Nutzhorn and came to California, christened herself Dorothea Lang. Well, Caroline Lee. Um, she also was a creation and her name was a creation, one part fiction, one part fact. As a character, she's one part fiction, one part fact. She's um, she's partly born of my imagination and partly born of the realities that that uh, Chinese Americans faced in, in San Francisco during this period. Well, I, I'm so struck by the way in which this novel um taps into the zeitgeist, taps into the moment. And it's so, Caroline's story particularly is so timely. Uh, 
given the racism and the anti-Asian and sexual violence that she faces as a mixed-race Asian woman. Why was it so important for you, Jasmine, to tell her story? I I have to confess, I, I do think it has a lot to do with being an immigrant myself. I came to America from Iran when I was five years old. My my parents had a motel. They ran. Um, it was on the side of the freeway in Marin County on the 101 freeway. It was a kind of a rundown place. And my mother and grandmother worked in that motel. They were invisible. They were women who um, were forging lives for their families. And yet um, I, I had the feeling growing up that um, that that they were invisible, that we were invisible. And so I think that's why I fastened on to Caroline is, is in writing about Caroline, I could give a story to a person who in some ways reminded me of the women of my own family. Mm-hmm. Was your, um, did, has your mother read your book, uh, Jasmine? No, she hasn't. Um, my mo- Yeah, she, she hasn't read the book. My my mom has Alzheimer's, and so it's it's hard for her to grasp oh, that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But um, but my mom's been uh, such a part of my life, and you know, also my writing. My first book was about my mother, and I think in its own way, that was a story that sought to um, render visible a story that had been invisible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does this book connect to? Could you talk a little bit more about that, about your earlier books, your memoir, and then your last novel? Sure. My first book was a memoir about my mother's life. She had, it's called The Good Daughter, and and my mother had been married when she was 13 and, and had a child and given that child away. I didn't know that story until I was in my mid-20s. She had kept that a secret from even her closest friends for about 50 years. So the book is the telling of that story, much of which I was learning as I was writing it. Um, and it, it closely, I was working with my mother in writing that first book. And that's a story about a woman making herself up in a sense also. This is Iran. My mother was born in 1938 in Iran. And so much of the book takes place in Iran, also tells my grandmother's story. The second book, I I have to say I'm I'm sensing a theme here <laughs> is um is I am just I am really interested and um I am really interested in telling stories about women who who face great challenges I, that's I guess that's in a sense I think about it, it's every woman's story in some way yeah but the second book was the story of Iran's great poet who herself had faced extraordinary challenges in the mid 50s in Iran to become a poet. Uh, and that book's called Song of a Captive Bird. Mm-hmm. There's so many parallels between the settings of the Bohemians and this moment. I, I said that earlier, but I just want to circle back to that. Um, you know, we, we mentioned, or you mentioned earlier that, you know, the Spanish flu, what was called the Spanish flu was surging across the country uh, when Dory, uh, Dorothea Lang first arrives in San Francisco. Um, there's anti-immigrant feeling, there's anti-Chinese sentiments on the rise, fueled by government officials. There were hate crimes uh, across the West. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 as I was reading this, Jasmine, I couldn't help but wonder what was it like for you writing this novel uh, during the Trump era? Because that that's the period of time you were doing your, your writing, right? Mm-hmm. It's such a curious thing. I think some sometimes we write because we want to escape. 
and and yet the world creeps in anyway and shows us what it is and who we are and that's what happened to me as i was writing the bohemians i did not set out to write about these things but the parallels as you say were um you know they could not be denied there they were i think that if you are attuned to what's happening inevitably the world works its way into your stories even if you think you're escaping it and uh and sometimes it can be uncomfortable uh i for sure i was i felt very uncomfortable to be writing about the anti-immigrant um sentiments and and crying hate crimes in the 1920s while i was observing very similar episodes unfolding there were very eerie parallels in the treatment of the chinese um and the muslim community my own community was suffered terribly during that time and and so that feeling was with me as i was writing this story and i think in in some ways I'll, I'll never be able to describe this fully because it's it, it's happening through you i think as you're writing you don't entirely command what you're what you're creating as you're creating it and that's what's wonderful about it that's what's wonderful but it's been so interesting to hear from readers how <laughs> how similar it seems how um in some ways uncomfortably close it seems to what we've been through. I hear what you're saying, though, about writing for escape. And there are such beautiful escapist moments in this book. And one of the um, escapist moments that I enjoyed the most was when uh, Maynard Dixon, the husband to Dorothea Lang, uh, was first courting her. So before he became her husband. And uh, I, I felt like I was escaping my home in the pandemic when I was reading this. And he takes her on a road trip through Marin County, where we both live. Um, could you describe that road trip for us? I just, it, I love that that section. I love that you love that. That's so fantastic. I did know Dor Dorothea Lang had been, she was born in Hoboken. She was a city girl and she came to San Francisco, also a city, but smaller one that she'd been used to. But Maynard Dixon introduces her to the wilder California, which he thinks of as the, the real California, he, he'd call it. And so the two of them, when they were first courting, would trek out to Marin County, to Mount Tam. He would do, he would take his sketching gear along with him. He was a very, very gifted illustrator. Um, and, and painter as well, but he loved to go out into the fresh air and, and draw. And so I imagine the two of them taking, they would have taken the ferry over, they would have taken a car onto a ferry over <laughs> to Burn County because there were no bridges. There wouldn't yes. be bridges for another 10 years. Uh, so they would have come, come from San Francisco into Tiburon and then driven along. And West Marin to me is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And it was a great pleasure to send them there on the, one of their first dates is where they, they go out to West Marin. That's one of my, that's one of my favorite drives. Um, I have driven it many times. It's a place of, you know, just such stupendous beauty and seemed to me the perfect setting for a love story. I agree. I agree. <laughs> having, having been bicycling out there about a week ago, it's just, it's, glorious. And I felt the love, Jasmine. Yeah. I mean, you know, and these are the things you can do when you write fiction is you can, in a way, you know, I, I was able to, um, I was able to weave in some of my own love for the Bay Area and these places that have been so meaningful to me 
Yeah. And what was the most fun part of writing it for you? The most fun part of writing it for me. That world in Montgomery Block was just, you know, it was just so, it was so transfixing. Especially now, I think it seems almost like a fairy tale that there was once this artist colony, 800, you know, I think all of us, all of us writers are, or somehow we, we dream of being in these communities surrounded by, um, by other creative folk. And it's hard, that's hard to sustain nowadays. It's, it's hard in the Bay Area. And so it was just wonderful to get to fall in with them and be in that world. Well, I would think that the uh, the equivalent for writers these days, or at least, at least over the last twenty years, is the San Francisco Writers Grotto, <laughs> which has moved moved physical spaces over the years. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know the equivalent of of artists, and there is an artist. Uh, there's a long established kind of uh, equivalent of a mo- monkey block. It's near KQED. It's been there for at least thirty years, and there are all kinds of amazing painters and sculptors who live and work in those studios, as you probably know. I think it's near CCA as well. Yeah. Yeah. There so, are places they're imperiled, but you know, they are imperiled. And that, that brings me to my next question, Jasmine. When did the city's role as a magnet for artists end in your view? Do you have a sense of that? Cause you teach at CCA in the city uh, as a professor of writing. Um mm-hmm. I think when Monkey Block was destroyed, that was one of the death knells, I, I do think. So Montgomery Block was torn down in 1959, I think. And, uh, you know, really there was no movement at the time to preserve it. Unfortunately, it was a parking lot for a decade and then became now the Transamerica building was there. There was an exodus at that time. So the people who were displaced then some of them left. They left California. Um, others of them went up to Haight-Ashbury and started that scene over there. And it's it's been, you know, it's sort of been coming and going, ebbing and flowing. I think the last 10 years have felt particularly difficult. I started, when I started teaching at CCA in, 2000, in 2008, 2009, a lot of the students could stay here. They could stay here. And the last few years, it's been pretty rare that that my students think they can make a living here in the Bay Area. So for sure, the last 10 years have been extremely challenging for young artists. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And is there anything uh, from, you know, from the era of the 20s, the monkey block, that inspired 1960s San Francisco. Is there a is there a line between those two periods of time and and those great flowerings of creativity that happened? I do. Th- I think so. I think it it absolutely was a sort of you know a rebirth of that spirit. And when you look at the we were talking about the role of women, so I think that there was also this really radical shift in the 60s that um, that feels really reminiscent of what was happening in the 20s. Um, and, uh, and, and so there's absolutely, I think there's absolutely a continuity between those two periods. The revolutionary spirit of San Francisco really came into flower during that time in the sixties. And, um, and there was a sense of, I remember Lawrence Ferlinghetti saying once that he thought of himself as the last bohemian, you know, but he saw himself as part of that. You know, he had, though, even though he'd come to San Francisco later, he he felt like he was um, he was part of this legacy in the city this 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 wondrous history of artists in the city. 
Mm, and, and let's let's all keep the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti in our hearts. Uh, the last Bohemian. That that really touches me. Yeah. So, what does that era of the twenties say about the era you think we're heading into? Do you think we're going to see another Roaring Twenties? Are we going to see, in some sense, the flowering? Uh, we know real estate prices in the city have dropped during the pandemic. Uh, we've seen that. Uh, but but more importantly, is there is there any uh, kind of a, a groundwork being laid for uh, a new type of creativity or experimentation? Mm, that's such a big question. I, I hear... I hear some hopeful rumblings out there, you know, that, that we might just have an opportunity now to rethink where we've been going here in the Bay Area. And there might be these small, you know, um, spaces and places that we might, we might use differently. We might use differently. And, um, and I, you know, I hope, I certainly hope so. I keep, <laughs> I keep saying that I hope that's where we're headed toward, toward this period of, um, toward this period of, of, community and vibrant life you know that also in the 1920s during Dorothea Lange's time they had also just come out of the pandemic you know so I think that 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 was tremendous too in 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 stoking this fire that burned all through the 20s yeah so let's hope so I hope so yeah what do you think are the lessons that you hope that people will take away from your book I know it's not a book intended to teach, to teach. Um, but what what do you hope people to, will take away from from it? It's it's hard it's hard to say. I mean, most of all, I just want them to experience the pleasure of a good story. There's a lot of history in the novel. I, I researched it and put a lot of historical detail in there. But most of all, it's a story. It's a story about a friendship and. I think, especially when you think of someone like Dorothea Lange, we've often got this notion that she did it alone. You know, that she's, she, if you think about her at all, you just think of her, there's that fantastic photograph of her sitting atop her car, but she's alone. She's always alone. And I think I want to, I want you to become reacquainted with her. And I think I want you to think deeply about the ways that your friendships, the, the way friendships remake us. They do, they do. And I think, I think, Lang in San Francisco in 1920s was absolutely remade by the friends she made here. So those are just some, some things that I, that I hope will come across. Um, but most of all, just to sink into a good story. <laughs> and, and it is a good story. And uh, I really urge people to read and buy this wonderful book. Um, and Jasmine, you know, you, you put it so well, the importance of friendship, the importance of collaboration. Uh, and I noticed that in this book, you dedicated to our our mutual friend, uh, Rebecca Faust, who is an enormously gifted uh, poet. We're both friends with her. And could you talk a little bit about your friendship with Becky? <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. It, really, for me, finding a community, it remade me. It made me a writer. I was not a writer until I started taking a writing workshop at Book Passage here in in Corte Madera. And that's where I met still my closest friends, including uh, Rebecca Faust, who's a poet. We met, what is it, about 12 years ago in that writing workshop. And 
I, I say about Dorothea Lange that it was in looking at these other women artists that she began to see herself as an artist. And that happened to me. That happened to me in that community and, and through my friendship with Rebecca. So we've been there for each other through all that time. And um, it's, it's really just such a, it, it's, it's such a, it's a, such a source of comfort, joy, and inspiration to, to have a, another woman friend um, who's working in the arts alongside you. So I've been very lucky. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the you know questions that I, I really want to ask you is, um, you know, the Dorothea Lang that I thought I knew was not in this book. The Dorothea Lang in this book is a young woman uh, who is vulnerable, who becomes a society uh, photographer with the help of Caroline Lee. Um, how did she become the Dorothea Lang with the depth, the empathy, the seriousness of purpose that we know her uh, from her work in the Depression? Could could you get us give us a sense of that trajectory? Absolutely. So I think that what happened to Dorothea Lang actually she she gives a a, a really detailed. I'm sorry, I'm dodging that sun behind me. Um, I apologize. Dorothea Lang gives a gives a really extraordinary account of of the moment. I mean, she really she really talks about a moment when she was working in her studio, different studio, not at Five Forty Stutter, but downtown, and she was working on finishing some some pictures. And she looked up. It was 1932. She had become the society photographer in San Francisco. She was the photographer for the De Youngs, for the Levi's, for the Fleischhackers. I mean, it was um, she was. She was absolutely at the top of her game, you might say. In 1932, the Depression really is felt in California. It had started earlier, but in 1932, you have the home, what we'd call now homeless, just thousands of people um, drifting through the city, living in encampments. And Dorothea Lang looks up from her window. She's working on those society portraits, and she sees a man who's lost. She sees a man who clearly is in need. He's, he has no, um, no sense of where, where to go. And the way she describes it is that she knew she had to get out into the street. She couldn't stay in the studio anymore. And so that's the beginning. And it took a while. It wasn't, I mean, that was the moment I think for her, but it took a while for her to disassemble her studio. You know, all, all of that had to, <laughs> by stages, she had to, um, dismantle her 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 portrait studio but that was the beginning and she starts to go into the streets and the streets teach her what she must do she becomes really attuned to to people suffering now i think in in her portrait studio she had been training for that moment i mean she had been training for this new work because she had been studying people and and finding ways to connect dorothy erling had a really extraordinary ability by all accounts to establish a connection with someone really quickly. And that was born, I think, of those many years she did spend in the studio of of really having the patience, being the present um, to people. And so she took that those qualities with her into the streets of San Francisco and then later into the the fields and you know the highways and all the places she would go, later than internment camps too. And, um, and so the, the work makes her now the San Francisco made her, the work made her. Um, she also was, uh, fortunately she, in her second marriage, she was able to, uh, she, she had a husband, 
um, Paul Taylor, who was very supportive of her. And I think we can thank his, uh, his role in her life too, for allowing her um, to, to transition and become a great documentary photographer. Well, the imaginative leap that your novel, The Bohemians, uh, encouraged me to make uh, in this was that Dorothea Dory also uh, experienced the suffering of Caroline Lee. And I won't spoil what happens in the book, but there's uh, something very dramatic that happens that is heart-wrenching. And so uh, I wonder if you had the same feeling that perhaps that experience of suffering deepened her uh, in some way. I wonder if that uh, may have laid the groundwork for the tremendous empathy that she showed in such photographs as what was the, is it Migrant Mother is probably the, the famous, most famous photographs. That- yeah. I worked my way backward from her photographs. and And I think you know, thinking about the kind of research I did, in a sense, those photographs she took, all the photographs she took were were an autobiograph- autobiography of a kind. They tell a story about who she was, what she cared about. So we mostly know Dorothea Lang from her Depression era photographs, but I was very, um, I was very moved um, by her photographs of the Japanese internment in 1942. She was hired by the army to to uh, document the internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans into um, concentration camps um, all over all over America. And in looking at those photographs, um, she she was someone who I think was she was very attuned to suffering of all kinds in all places. She had, she had had polio as a child. And I think that gave her some empathy um, all of her life. She had a, a sense of empathy for people who fell outside or were forgotten or, you know, were lost. And, and that also was, it was just very, um, to, to me, it really told a story about what she cared about the, the ways that she photographed the Japanese in the camps was was so much so much heart and um and emotion and and I worked my way back I thought I I thought having worked alongside I mean shoulder to shoulder with a Asian American woman as a young woman I do think that that changed her in some way I do think it it started the it started story right there in her coming to San Francisco and being in a place where she was um, where she was, she was exposed to people from all different, you know, all different races. And then her gift was then to, to take those photographs and, and, and now we have those records left. Mm -hmm. So your, uh, your, your last novel was about a, another trailblazing female poet. And then, uh, in this case, uh, novel about uh, artists. Will your next project also be about a woman? Can you give us a hint of what you might be doing next? I I love, I really love this forum. I think imagination is a vehicle for empathy. I think history can be corrected to some extent by the imagination, by works of fiction, by art. And so, yes, I'm going to continue to write stories um, that stands sort of at this intersection of history and story. And I am going to continue to write about women. This time, this time around, I'm going to 
Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s, um, writing Ooh. about, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're excited already. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't wait. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, to me, I, I just continue to, to, to be excited by the, the discovery of, um, you know, really fantastic stories that haven't been told yet. Mm-hmm. Hollywood and what period, what era? In it's the thirties. It's the 1930s and forties. Nice. <laughs> That's going to be so great. So Jasmine, a kind of personal question, but I, I know that, uh, you know, many of us writers out here want to know it now. So you manage, you are a, a full professor at the California college of arts. You parent, you write books. How in the world have you managed to create your own this life in the Bay Area and juggle all of this. Could you, you know, for for those of us out here who <laughs> maybe are struggling with some of these issues, how do you do it? Yeah, I, yeah. There, there are a lot of things that I don't do. That's where I should start. Is I don't have a really active social calendar. You know, it, nowadays nobody does. But I think I've had to really pare things down. To you know, I don't think I can do many things well or even reasonably well. And so I've really pared it down to my family and the writing and the teaching. Thankfully teaching, it's not a nine to five job. It's it it it's for sure a lot of hours, but I can work through the weekends or I, there are ways to slip the writing in. I have a really fantastic husband, I have to say, who he right now as I'm sitting here, um, we live with my mother has Alzheimer's, we take care of her and um you know, there, there's, there's really just, I, I can't, I really cannot imagine doing most of what I do without him. So when I was talking about Lang and, and how she was really fortunate in her second marriage, that's been a, a great change in my life is to have a really supportive partner. And then a little shout out um, to all those supportive partners out there. And other than that, I think it, it adds up, you know, I started writing when I had a small child, I was a single mother at that time. And I only had two and three hours at a time where he would go to preschool. And I learned to work in a focused way for short bursts of time. And I still work like that. I still work like that. And I have learned that it does add up over time. It doesn't necessarily feel like it, but a year of these two or three hour um, bursts a few times a week and you're close to a book. <laughs> well, speaking for myself, I can't wait for your next one, Jasmine. Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. Uh, your your writing is so transportive. I feel like I I you take me into a different world, and I don't think I'll ever uh, walk past the Transamerica Building again without thinking about the Monkey Block and imagining those 800 artists there. And the lives they were imagining for themselves, and Caroline Lee and uh, Dory Dorothea Lang, and thank you. You know, I just really want to say thank you for um, all of the care and talent and love you put into this book. It is, it is really, really something. Um, I'm going to recommend again. Take a look. Go to your independent bookstore. Uh, and find Jasmine's book. It's uh, it's really something. And I want to thank Jasmine Darsnick for joining us at tonight's Commonwealth Club program. I will repeat myself and say I encourage you to purchase her new book, The Bohemians. I'm Julia Flynn Seiler, and this Commonwealth Club program 
is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.